A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can, but to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? White 3x5 index cards in file boxes. You know, just like at home. Just like in a recipe box, all right? This is for tacos, this is for corned beef and cabbage, if you're Irish like I am. There's over 2,000 of them. That's retired Detective Sergeant Frank Flannery, and he's talking about some cards he found in a bust in Homewood, Illinois, back in 1973. Before the personal computer, the humble index card was a very useful tool to organize everything from recipes to lists to your thoughts. In the 1970s, Thousands of index cards were stored in tiny drawers in tall wooden cabinets in libraries around the world, and each one of them led you to a book. Businessmen lived by their Rolodex of business contacts, written on index cards. So when Detective Flannery mentioned the index cards, I knew what he was talking about. Now, a few days earlier, I heard the same description from another detective. He found index cards in another apartment a month earlier in Dallas. And it was the same man who owned those cards in both places. His cards had nothing to do with collecting recipes and everything to do with collecting the names of boys and men to organize his empire of child abuse. Unlike the pedophile scandal surrounding Troop 137 in New Orleans that we told you about in the last episode, the clients of this empire were never prosecuted, And most of his cards, well, they disappeared. This is the story of an apex predator, a man who spent over 40 years trafficking boys across America. Few people are aware of him, but we'll peel back the layers of his life, tell you how he operated, expose the extent of his network, and how he got away with it for so long. And it starts 
with those innocent index cards. This is the story of John David Norman, the kingpin of a pedophile network. For ID, this is the clown and the candy man. I'm Jacqueline Bynan. I want to take you back to Texas in August of 1973, because that's when John David Norman's name first hit the media. And it was all because of Dean Coral and the Houston mass murders. 250 miles north of Houston, in Dallas, 25-year-old Charles Brizendine, a gay rights activist from West Virginia, had just started a new job with the Odyssey Foundation. The man who hired Brizendine was 45-year-old Alan Hitchcock, but his real name was John David Norman. Now, according to the Odyssey Foundation's literature, and I'm quoting from a 1976 FBI report, the organization was set up to give deserving but underprivileged young men the opportunity to associate with adults interested in giving them a boost in life. But almost immediately, Brissendine figured out the Odyssey Foundation wasn't what he thought. The young men were underage, and that wasn't unexpected. But some of the adult sponsors, who were supposed to be giving them a boost in life, were only interested in buying time with the boys and sexually molesting them. They were pedophiles. This wasn't what Brissendine signed up for. He was a gay rights activist, not a pedophile. Now, that same week, Dean Coral and the Houston mass murders were making headlines. Day after day, the numbers of bodies of boys unearthed from the boat shed and the sands along the Gulf Coast kept rising. And Coral's two teenage accomplices were claiming that Dean worked for an organization in Dallas that bought and sold and murdered boys. Worse, it was when Brizendine found photos of boys in the Odyssey file stamped with the word kill that he started to panic. Now, he didn't know the word kill was a common advertising term for a photo that wouldn't be used or released. He thought maybe the Odyssey Foundation was that Dallas organization Coral was connected to, and some of the boys in the boat shed were the photos in Norman's files. Bad enough to find yourself in the middle of a boy sex trafficking ring, but one that murdered them? One that might be connected to a serial killer like Dean Coral? In a panic, Prison Dean called the FBI, and they called the Dallas police. Six days after Detective Sid Smith opened that boat shed in Houston, Dallas police raided the Odyssey Foundation, and we found one of the Dallas police detectives who made that bust, R.C. Nelson. John David Norman, the pedophile of pedophiles. We opened the door and went into the apartment. And as I recall, Norman was sitting at a kitchen table, a couple of kids sitting around. He just didn't much have anything to say. And when we interviewed him, you know, all he had was a nod or a, I don't know, or I'm innocent. After talking to one of the kids, it was apparent what was going on, what Norman was doing as far as sending kids around the country for prostitution. It was kids for rent. To join the Odyssey Foundation cost the men, or sponsors as Norman called them, $15. For an extra three bucks, they received a catalog containing the photos of the young men, or fellows as Norman referred to them. 
Sponsors then could meet with the desired fellow for anywhere from $20 to $40 per day, plus any airfare. Norman recruited his fellows by placing ads in gay periodicals and cruising around bus depots and other places like arcades where boys were likely to be found. We had our share of runaways in the Dallas area, and I'm sure that uh, Norman didn't have any problem finding runaways. He'd go to the bus station, pick up a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, offer him money, take him to his apartment, and indoctrinate them on the process. Money and travel. That's a very enticing lure for any runaway kid. The retired detective told me that one of the kids in the apartment was due to be shipped out to one of Norman's clients in Fort Worth that very day. He was to be shipped out for an appointment with a professor in Fort Worth. So I called him. And... He said, well, I'm in class. I can get over there in a couple of hours or so. And I said, well, no, that's not the way it works. You either come now or I come there and handcuff you into class. He was there in 30 minutes and gave a detailed description of the acts that he performed on these kids. He first started off, said, he came and we made love. And that disgusted me. And I said, buddy, you didn't make love to this kid. You sexually assaulted him, is what you did. It was apparent that this operation went far beyond one local Fort Worth teacher. Norman had this kid booked to travel to quite a few sponsors around the country. From there, he would go to Houston. And from there, he would go to Atlanta for a prostitution date. From there, he might go to Washington or New York. The Dallas police ultimately confiscated a pickup truck full of pornographic literature from Norman's apartment, along with a camera, photo engraving equipment, stationery, and a typewriter. But the true scope of the nationwide organization was in those tiny index cards. They were three by five cards, and they had the name, address, phone numbers. Nearly every card had what the recipient preferred, oral sex or sodomy of some type. Most of them requested the younger the better, blonde hair, fair skin, with very little body hair. As I went through that file, some real prominent people were on his card file. You would recognize names if I called them. The head of a, a big orchestra was a recipient on a card. There were prominent people. These weren't just a bunch of street people. I mean, these were people who could afford to fly a kid from Houston to Atlanta and from Atlanta to New York. And again, prominent people, not just your everyday Joe. Every name on a card required its own investigation, a nationwide effort no one seemed willing to make. Well, as a local Dallas Police Department, it would have been impossible for us to do that. And I'm not sure there was any other agency interested. 
So what happened to the cards with all those names? We filed a Freedom of Information request with the Dallas police, and we received a one-page arrest report back. That's it. Our request was denied. The Dallas police said that's because there were names of juveniles in that file, and they were protected by law. The same was true in the Dean Coral case, but those files were released to us by the Houston and Pasadena police. To protect the identity of the juveniles there, they redacted the names. And that means they put a black magic marker through any names so we couldn't see them. According to the Texas Public Information Act, agencies have a duty to redact and release. And that means release the information that relates to your inquiry, even if they have to redact to protect the parts that do not. We appealed to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office, but we were denied again. So the search for those cards through history continued. I'm sure there were people in this file that would have contacts with whoever had the cards to get them destroyed. There's no doubt in my mind there weren't people in there that would want them destroyed. Can't say who, but I'm sure there were. Because it was national, too. It wasn't just in Dallas. Oh, no. This was nationwide. A real business for this guy. Took a lot of work for him. Unfortunately, we never brought him to trial in Dallas. Why didn't you bring him to trial? He's gone. It was true. Norman posted $7,000 bail and fled Texas. The Houston and Pasadena police did work with the Dallas police to see if there was any connection to Dean Coral, but nothing came of it. Now, you have to remember that the Houston police were in way over their head. They were dealing with America's largest mass murder at the time and trying to identify those 28 victims. The case faded and nothing was ever proven. Two months later, though, Detective Nelson heard John Norman's name again. I got a call from Illinois from a Detective Flannery, and Norman was there doing the same thing. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Two months after John Norman's Boys for Rent scheme bust in Dallas, the police in Homewood, Illinois, received an anonymous call. Homewood is about 30 miles south of Chicago, and it was Detective Sergeant Frank Flannery who picked up the phone. This woman said, Mr. Flannery, you don't know me, but I'm telling you that there is a man on an apartment. He is luring young boys and performing sexual acts on them. The caller identified one of those boys as 13-year-old Kenny Hellstrom. I almost fell out of the chair. I knew the Hellstroms since grade school. This is their son. I called Kenny Hellstrom's father, and I said, you better come in here and you better bring that boy with you. I said, he's involved in some very, very terrible activities that are going on. It didn't take long for Kenny to start spilling the beans. He told me that he had first met this person in a restaurant in Homewood, and the man asked him if he wanted a ride home, and he said, sure. So he put him in the car, and instead of taking him home, he brought him to his apartment and asked him if he wanted some beer. He brought him in there, and he gave him beer. And on that particular occasion, nothing happened sexually. Kenny then went back to his friends and said, hey, I know a good place where we can go get beer. And that's the way that this thing got started. He would show them pornographic films where it was just males having sexual acts with one another. And the boys, they went along with it. He stripped himself naked in front of those boys and, stri- and, and dropped their drawers and performed oral sex on those boys, uh, sometimes four and five at once and sometimes one at a time. This, this, these are the testimonies that we have from the boys themselves. You're talking about one evil, evil, I, I can't use that kind of language, but uh, I've got a few more words uh, that could describe this man. And as far as I'm concerned, there's a special place in hell for that bastard. The man called himself Stephen Gerwell, but there was nothing in the records on Stephen Gerwell. So Detective Flannery checked with the FBI, and he ended up talking to the Dallas police. Two months earlier, they had arrested a guy calling himself Alan Hitchcock, who was none other than John David Norman. Here he was again with yet another alias up to his old tricks. Uh, And as far as I'm concerned, he was on the run. Now, that's interstate flight to avoid prosecution. That's a federal offense. When Flannery raided the apartment where Hellstrom said the sex acts took place, Norman wasn't there. 
but there was plenty of evidence. In an upstairs bedroom that was not being used, this is where we found the camera, the filming, and these index cards. I said to my partner, I said, well, what in the world is this? White three by five index cards in file boxes, just like in a recipe box. This is for tacos, this is for corned beef and cabbage, if you're Irish like I am. We'd found over 2,000 file cards with the names of over 2,000 boys ranging in age from 14 to 20. Most of them were from out of state. Dallas, Texas, San Diego, uh, Maryland, Connecticut, New York State, Florida, all over the place. I mean, this was a national scheme. They were supplying boys all over the country. That wasn't just centered around Dallas. That was all over the place. I had never seen anything like that in my life. It's like renting a sex slave, as far as I'm concerned. Kenny and his friends narrowly missed becoming Norman's newest boys for rent. But where was John Norman? Now, the person that was actually renting that apartment was not John David Norman. It was a person that he knew. He had received information about this Odyssey Foundation and had sent money to the Odyssey Foundation and to send him a mail to see if they were compatible. And he ended up taking this 16-year-old boy. We never did get the boy's name or anything like that. Never could find him. He took him to Europe. He told us he spent like $4,500 on the trip to Europe. That was a lot of money in 1973. A real live client of John Norman's boy sex trafficking operation, the Odyssey Foundation. He thought maybe we were going to be able to charge him with something. And believe me, if I had got the chance, I would have. But there was no way we could prove if these acts actually took place, although I would bet my bottom dollar they did. So, yeah, we told the owner of the, the renter of the apartment, if this guy contacts you, you have to contact us. And he did. He called. So my partner went over there and he came in there with another person and they arrested him. John David Norman, he was thin. I can't remember exactly how tall he was, but he didn't really look his age. But you would probably think he was, I don't know, 35, 36, something like that. And he was nervous. There's no two ways about it. He knew he was in big trouble. As for the card files? We found out that some of this activity had gone on in the city of Chicago itself. So I got a hold of the juvenile section in the Chicago Police Department. They sent detectives out. After we had made our arrests, after they had gone ahead and indicted John David Norman, we gave everything that we had, the cards, all the files, everything, to the Chicago Police Department, and they started their prosecution with him as well. But where those cards are at today, I have no idea. Norman was kept in Chicago's Cook County Jail with bail set at $325,000, and that was a lot of money back in 1973. This time, he had no easy way out. None of his customers, though, were charged. Two cases, back-to-back, two months apart, where police uncovered a national boy sex trafficking ring run by one man. And not only were none of his clients charged, but both times his client lists disappeared and no other prosecutions were made. I asked retired Detective Flannery why those cards would disappear. Power. People know judges. People know other people in power themselves. People like you and I would have been in jail a long time ago. But these people, they do it and they get away with it. As for Kenny Hellstrom, 
Well, he was the star witness against Norman on those charges in Homewood. Norman ended up pleading guilty three years later, and in 1976, Norman was sentenced to four years in Pontiac Prison. A few months later, January 19, 1977, someone murdered Kenny Hellstrom. It was cold out and a lot of snow. And he was on his way home from work, and he'd get locked up the gas station, and he got stabbed to death. Somebody stabbed him six times in his back. And he made his way home and was scratching at the door, and he died in his mother's arms. His mother called me, and she was naturally in hysteria. And she said, Frank, you have to find him. You have to find him. And I never did. We never did figure out 100% why the person stabbed him, but it took over 30 years for that crime to be solved. In the witness reports, Kenny's friends pointed the finger at John Norman. And later in the series, we'll hear from someone who believes Norman did arrange from prison to have Kenny murdered. Just three months later, details of John Norman's operations were exposed to the nation. But they didn't come from law enforcement. They came from one reporter and something she received in the mail. Listen to this. Norman's Delta Project may have been the closest thing to a nationwide sex ring that we've ever seen. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it would be Chicago? Wouldn't you know, after we've had the, all the organized crime stories, this would be the place. In the Cook County Jail, John David Norman sat awaiting trial on his sodomy charges in Homewood. There he met 20-year-old Philip Paskey from Chicago. Paskey was awaiting trial on attempted murder in a robbery. Soon, the two of them were thick as thieves. And get this. Norman talked his way into a job in the jail's record office, and with the help of Paskey, used the jail's own printing press to get his Boys for Rent newsletter back into print. Now, I want you to remember that name, Philip Paskey. He got his start with John Norman, but he's going to come up again later in connection to the killer clown. Now, in early 1976, Philip Paskey was paroled and continued to run Norman's Boys for Rent operation from the outside. One year later, though, Norman was paroled. He moved in with Paskey, and they continued to run the mail-order sex business together. Little did they know one reporter was about to blow the cover on their underground pedophile network. I was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune in 1977. I think I was all of 33 years old. And it was my first sort of major investigation. That's Michael Sneed, one of Chicago's most powerful journalists. Back then, her career was about to take off. It started with a pamphlet about underage boys for rent. Somebody sent me a flyer in the mail, and the flyer said the Delta Project, and it had to do with boy love stuff. We had no idea where it was coming from. I called the police department, and I asked for the juvenile division, and there was silence, total silence. The end result was he hung up. I went to my editor, and he said, look, let's go to George. George Bliss was a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, 
and he had a lot of good connections with the Chicago police. And he found out that the police had just begun their own undercover investigation into child sex trafficking. And they agreed to let Sneed and Bliss join in that undercover operation. Now remember, this was 1977. Something like that happening today would be rare indeed. It was sort of during a time when reporters and police worked together a little differently. We really worked together. So every night we'd go to the Chicken Hawk area. Uh, this is an area where men would cruise for boys. We were on stakeouts. We were in cars with cops. We were watching what was going on every night, trying to identify some of these men. I even remember holding a gun at one juncture during this whole thing when we arrested two pornographers. And while they were handcuffing them, one police officer threw me his gun and said, hold it on him, will you please? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Embedded with the cops night after night for weeks on end, Bliss and Sneed saw a dark web of child pornography and prostitution emerging on the streets of Chicago. Men were paying underage boys to have sex with them which was an outrage. Even I thought that men were only interested in little girls. It didn't even occur to me that it was little boys that they were after. I will tell you one thing that I think is important to note. It was the gay community that helped us in the beginning with this because they didn't want this in their area, in their community, in the city, because they did not want to get hit with that all gays are pedophiles. And they were right when it was over with, when the series was over with, they did get hit. The brochure Michael Sneed received in the mail, The Delta Project, was part of this so-called boy love world, but went far beyond the streets of the Windy City. This was the 70s. There was no internet, no social media. It was newsletter after newsletter promoting pedophilia as an unabashed lifestyle from coast to coast and around the world. They would send around these brochures. Somehow they went through the mails and through word of mouth, people would know that this is what this meant. This periodical was just a way of summoning you to these places. It was print, it was paper. This was a pond of perversity. And the ringleader was headquartered in Chicago. John Norman was the guy, he was the big guy. He was the guy that produced all this stuff. His arrest record dates back to May 20th, 1954, when he was arrested for molesting a minor in Houston. After that, he was arrested in Sacramento, Santa Ana, Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Dallas, Chicago, and Homewood for various sex-related offenses. Because of the Chicago Tribune investigation, both federal and state lawmakers finally took notice. When I interviewed Sneed, she brought that report from the Illinois Investigating Committee with her, and there's a whole section about John Norman in it. She reads from it here. Basically, Norman was interested in setting up a business in which young boys would be used for the sexual pleasure of adults. He called his project the Delta Project. He planned to find a number of suitable young boys to be called Delta Cadets, to be available in various cities for adult sexual activity. Members of the project would pay dues for the privilege of being involved and would be able to use the boys as they wished. Members of the group were to be known as Delta Dons 
and were to come from various cities across the country. He said, we learned from a Cook County State's Attorney's investigator that the Delta Project had set up operations in New Orleans in 1976, but the extent of the operations wasn't known. An alleged sex ring had been broken in New Orleans and Norman's name had been tied to it. Norman's Delta Project may have been the closest thing to a nationwide sex ring that we've ever seen. That must have sent shockwaves to Chicago when that story came out. It's like, you know, we'd always been the organized crime center, and we were finally getting over that. Then John Norman came to town. I interviewed him uh, in prison. He was totally unapologetic. He said that he had had sexual contact with boys from 14 and then men up to 26. He said he had kept account of all the sexual relationships he had had, which was perhaps a thousand. He said, I'd like to think that I've done no harm in my life because whatever sex he had done was with a consenting relationship. Well, to these pedophiles, consenting means that a child says, okay. The more he talked about his life, the more he realized that there was no way he wasn't going to be a danger to society because there was no way he was going to stop this because he'd been doing it all his life. He had 1,500 index cards, a mailing list, names, addresses, locations of young people that he could either film or were interested in watching these films or getting to know these. And there was not one female name in this uh, card. It was Michael Snead and George Bliss who investigated the fate of those Dallas index cards. The Tribune reported that Dallas police had found names of federal employees on the cards. Here's what we can't explain, though. Instead of turning the cards over to the FBI, they were shipped to the State Department in Washington, D.C. for further investigation. The federal agency apparently had said something like, well, we didn't find any passport violations, and so they were destroyed. Now, why they were destroyed, those cards, who knows if there were politicians involved? Who knows who was what names were in these cards. We found the letter from the State Department confirming that the index cards had been received and destroyed. Do you think those cards were destroyed? Do you think they, they could be sitting somewhere in a box no, in the basement of the State Department? They're gone. They're gone. I still wanted to find those cards, though. After 47 years, could they have been stored in a warehouse somewhere? We checked with the Homewood police, but like Detective Flannery says... They didn't have the cards. So we put in a request with the Chicago police, asking for investigators' notes, address books, witness statements relating to John Norman, anything that might help us. Here's what they said, and I'm going to quote. In regard to your request, please be advised that search results returned negative. Therefore, the Chicago Police Department does not possess any responsive records to these portions of your request as it is stated. End of quote. Whatever that means, because we know they arrested Norman in 1978. So why are they telling us that there's nothing found under his name? That's a mystery. Michael Sneed and George Bliss discovered what they called overlapping webs of vice operating across America, in Texas, New York, L.A., and Michigan. And when I interviewed Michael Sneed about John Norman, she mentioned a name I'd heard before. Gerald Richards. Remember him? 
He's the gym teacher, the man with the magic show that 15-year-old Michael Farquhar told us about in Michigan. Now, Richards was already serving time for his crimes connected to the phony boys' camp on North Fox Island, the original pedophile island. So one of the police officers in the uh, unit and I drove to Michigan to interview him because he wanted to be helpful, which was really interesting. I actually liked the guy. Um, For a while there, I almost forgot about the heinous stuff that he was doing. He told me about how um, it had become so lucrative he couldn't stop. He was married. He had children. Uh, He was feeling very guilty about that fact. But at the same token, and he was not using his own children to do this, uh, but he was living this secret life where he had begun filming these kids. He was subscribing to this stuff. Then he'd find out who would want this, and then he'd set up these situations, and he'd film this stuff, and he'd send it out through the mail. And the money just kept piling in. And he was part of the so-called Delta Project. After months of crisscrossing the country, talking to the police, pornographers, and some of their victims, in May of 1977, the Chicago Tribune published the series exposing the pedophile rings in America. And the story exploded. It was a massive moment for both Sneed and the country. I had no idea that it would be this big. I knew it was going to be a big crime story. But the fact that we uncovered it and how big it was caused, I believe, for the first and only time for the Senate Judiciary Committee to come to Chicago and hold hearings. Michael Sneed and George Bliss testified at the 1977 congressional hearings on child exploitation. Those hearings led to changes in federal law that New Orleans detectives Gus Stansbury and Frank Wicks talked about in Episode 4. It was now a federal crime to traffic not just girls, but boys, across state lines for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Now, this had been going on for years, until Sneed and Bliss, the media tended to downplay these stories. They covered them as isolated incidents. One or two guys, police caught them, no one dug deeper, all was forgotten. No one treated this like organized crime, which it was. These cards and what Norman did showed how it worked and how those networks of men didn't pay for their crimes, because the system wasn't set up to make them pay until 1977. If the Chicago Tribune hadn't followed this lead, hadn't been able to work closely with the Chicago police, how much longer would this have gone on before the laws were ever changed? I mean, I knew that it was good work. I knew it was important to do it, but it really jaded me. And when I became a mother, I will tell you, the first thing I did when my son wanted to go away to camp was I called the camp. And I said, how well do you screen your people? Oh, we screen them. We really screen them. I said, if my son comes home and tells me that he's been touched inappropriately, I'll shut you down. I will shut you down. Now, what kind of a conversation is that? Just as Michael Sneed predicted, John Norman didn't stop. He was arrested again in Chicago in the fall of 1978. He was released again two years later and crisscrossed America. Denver, Pennsylvania, back to Illinois, always trying to get another Delta project off the ground. 
everywhere he went, he was caught, skipped bail, and went on the run. And his client lists always disappeared or were destroyed. We'll come back to Norman later in this podcast, and you're not going to believe why. But to tell the rest of the Norman story, we first have to tell you about a bigger monster Chicago was about to uncover, a model citizen who was hiding in plain sight. I get a phone call from a tremendous source who used to call me the pervert queen. And he'd say, Sneed, I got a story for you. It is right up your alley. And I said, what? He said, bodies, boys, buried in a basement under a house. I said, you've got to be kidding. Only he wasn't. We'll dive into the case of John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, through the eyes of the surveillance cops who took him down. That's next in episode six, 10 days in December. Do you remember about the arrest of John Wayne Gacy? I jumped out, ripped open the door of uh, his car, and stuck my gun in his ear. He said to me, Ron, what's wrong? I thought we were friends. The Clown and the Candyman is an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. John White is our editor, with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. <laughs>